Welcome to Political State, the Oklahomans' weekly politics podcast. With the Oklahoman, I'm Ben Felder, joined by my colleague Carmen Foreman. Uh, I'm out of my house, as you can probably tell. And Carmen, you were at the Capitol a week ago. We were both snowed into our house. There was uh, a lot less going on at the Capitol with uh, several inches of snow on the ground. Today it's 70, it's gorgeous. Uh, perfect weather this week for them to get done what they needed to get done, which was meeting their first uh, build deadline of of the legislative session. We'll get into that in a moment. And we're also going to talk about kind of the election earthquake, if you will, that we felt last week with the announcement that Senator Jim Inhofe is going to retire at the end of this year or early next year, um, opening his seat and kind of creating a domino effect with other races. But let's start at the Capitol where you've been all week. Um, This is the first deadline for bills to get out of their initial committee. So bills are filed at the beginning of the year. They are assigned a committee. So Senate bills are assigned to their Senate committees. Same thing in the House. And this week they had to get out of that committee if they were going to stay alive. Now there are some techniques to to bring back some issues and maybe we can get into that a little bit. But this is the initial deadline. I'm curious, what did we see and what do we not see uh, as this deadline passes? Yeah, uh, great questions. Um, It was, I mean, a flood of bills and it didn't help that the legislature uh, had sort of had to take two days off last week because of the ice storm. Um, So that just meant this week was even busier and there was even more of a rush to the finish. Um, Some highlights of what we did see, Pro Tem Treats, Oklahoma Empowerment Act did make it, you know, through its first committee, which was Senate Education, and then made it through the Senate Appropriations Committee, which is basically if any bill deals with money, it goes also to the Appropriations Committee and they talk about it there. He amended it a bit, so it no longer includes an option to use uh, funds for homeschool, and it also adds an income cap, but that made it through, even though... In early on in this whole thing, it didn't it didn't look like it quite had the legs to go very far, but it, it, it's building up its margins. Um, we also saw the pro tem's grocery tax bill um, pass, and we've also seen a number of you know anti-abortion bills that have passed, things that look, resemble what Texas passed, and then um, even like a personhood bill that would go uh, before voters and basically say you know there's no right to an abortion. Um, We have seen some bills passed that would change Oklahoma elections. Uh, We've seen some vaccine mandate bills get through. And then uh, certainly a number of constitutional amendments that would change how Oklahoma state question processes work. And those constitutional amendments would, if, if they are eventually approved by the legislature in both chambers, would then have to go for a vote of the people, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And frankly, that was just like a very brief overview of all of the things that passed this week. There was a And some of those topics we've talked about before, we've talked about the school voucher bill. Um, Interestingly, you dropped the homeschool component. It still includes uh, primarily a a voucher for private school attendance for for students that are in public school right now. Um, We've talked about how the, the the challenges that he might that that bill might face in the House because of a more rural caucus. Um, we talked about some of the abortion bills and we saw kind of a flurry of those. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about some of the changes to how elections could be conducted. And one of those resolutions that was passed by a committee this week, if it were to pass through the legislature and then were, would have to go for a vote of the people, but would require when you collect signatures on a petition 
to put an issue on the ballot. So like we've seen like Medicaid expansion or medical marijuana that you would have to get signatures from 5% of the voters in every county. Am I, did I read that right in our own coverage? You read it right. So there are two kind of like that. There's one, the, the one that you referenced that if um, this would be, if you're collecting for a referendum petition, you'd have to get um, signatures from 5% of registered voters in all of 77 counties. If you want to do a statutory petition, which is what the medical marijuana question was, it would be 8%. And if you want to amend Oklahoma's constitution, you would have to get signatures from 15% of registered voters in all Oklahoma counties. I have not done the math yet, but I plan to. And I mean, frankly, that sounds really hard. And then there's a similar bill, except instead of doing it county by county, it would be by um, each congressional district. So basically the same thresholds, the five, I think the eight, and then the 15%, but you'd have to collect it for each congressional district. And this is clearly a response from a legislature that's not been happy with some of the uh, ballot measures that Oklahomans have approved, particularly lawmakers in rural parts who feel like, I mean, expansion, uh, medical marijuana uh, passed through largely because of support in the urban areas of Oklahoma City and Tulsa, which that's how it works, right? The math is the math. More people live in the cities. But some rural lawmakers who haven't been happy about what voters have approved, I don't know if this seems like a pretty high benchmark to, I, I don't know, it, it seems like to me that it would be hard to get almost anything on the ballot. I, I would totally agree. It seems like it would be very difficult. And right now, I mean, like, GOP lawmakers that are pushing some of these constitutional amendments, they say, oh, well, you know, supporters of a state question can go hang out at the Oklahoma State Fair, or the Tulsa State Fair, or let's say Oklahoma City Pride, any sort of big event, and then they can collect hundreds, if not thousands of signatures in a day. But just imagine, I mean, if you were having to go out to the panhandle and collect signatures there, I mean, not to sound ignorant of rural Oklahoma, but there aren't a lot of places in the panhandle where you could find thousands of people all at once. And, and of course, that's factoring in that only a portion of those people would ever, you know, would sign a petition. Yeah. Well, it's like I said, it would still have, it still has to pass through the legislature and then these would have to bring to a vote of the people. It'd be interesting to see how an election like this would be framed. Um, I can envision commercials that say, you know, giving power back to rural voters and, or those that are saying, you know, running commercials in the urban areas that say the opposite, that this is taking power away from the cities. I think it'd just be interesting to see that if we get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I personally would love to know how voters outside of the urban areas would feel about something like this. And I would be curious to see, you know, if any of these measures make it to the ballot, who would be spending in favor and who would be spending against? Because I mean, you know, when you have a big rate of return, let's say you're trying to pass Medicaid expansion. There was a ton of money that went into that campaign to pass Medicaid expansion. But who specifically is going to, you know, be the opposition to something that's going to make state questions harder? Who has the money to do that just for the long term of, you know, keeping democracy a little bit more democratic, I suppose? Yeah. And this just continues to speak to this kind of urban rural divide that we're seeing uh, in Oklahoma and you're seeing across the country, but it, it's not just about how Democrats are mainly in the city and Republicans are mainly in rural areas, which is true in many parts of the country and definitely true here in Oklahoma. Um, but uh, it's it's that's even the split you see within within the Republican caucus. It'd be interesting to see if uh, if these uh, uh, resolutions uh, go to the Senate or House floor, 
you know, what a suburban Republican may think about this. I mean, they may side a little bit more with rural Oklahoma values, or do they think that this would take away uh, power from their own voters in their own district? I just think it would be fascinating to watch the debate play out uh, if these end up moving forward. I'm curious with this deadline, were there anything, was there anything that we did not see that you felt like that maybe got some attention before the session started that now with this first deadline cleared, you know, didn't really become an issue? Sure. I mean, I think there were several bills that were deemed very controversial. And you, I, if I remember correctly, I think you wrote about one. There was a bill from Representative Jim Olson that would have prohibited the teaching of like the 1619 project. And um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that one got passed. There was a lot of hubbub about a bill that would have prevented the teaching of social emotional learning which some Republicans have basically equated to critical race theory. Um, And there was a lot of just like online chatter and people being up in arms about the bill. And I don't recall that one passing. Uh, There's been some book banning type bills that have not passed, although there are others that are kind of controversial and have passed. But we've also seen sort of a moderate um, in-between kind of bill that passed in the House from Representative Kyle Hilbert. I don't know. Anything that surprised you that didn't make it through? I don't know about that didn't make it through. Um, You know, you talk about the book banning bills and it looked like uh, uh, Senator Stanridge's bill that would ban from school libraries or allow parents to remove from school libraries any book that dealt with sexuality and kind of a wide definition there. Basically, any book that they didn't like, they could request it to be removed. And the way that the bill is written at this and its current form, the school would have to oblige and remove it, or it could be, it could face some steep penalties. Um, Something that you've written about, I've written about this week. It wasn't initially on the Senate Education Committee's agenda this week. So it looked like it was going to be one of those bills that didn't make it past the deadline. It was added at the last minute or the last hours. What was interesting to me about that is that Senator Pugh, who is the chair of the committee, he, along with three Democrats, voted against it. It wasn't enough to I mean, there were more votes in favor, so it passed the committee. But as the committee chair, he decided to give it a hearing, even though he was against it. It tells me that he probably felt a lot of pressure from his colleagues that this is one thing that they wanted to hear, even though he voted against it. Normally, if a chair is going to vote against something, he doesn't want to bring it up uh, to get a hearing. But that bill did pass. Now, you referenced a, a similar bill in the House that also passed. And that one would ban books and school libraries that are deemed, uh, I don't remember the exact language. So the one from Representative Kyle Hilbert basically requires that uh, school library books basically meet community standards. So, you know, it's pretty broad. I think it's intentionally broad. So Mm -hmm. each, each community might have different standards and that the books are, quote unquote, age appropriate there was one from Representative Sherry Conley that would, um, it had to do with library books and then also some reading materials that all of that stuff get posted online, uh, lesson plans get posted online. And I don't recall that one make it, making it through. Um, but I know some folks were kind of like, their feathers were ruffled about that because they saw it as, a, as an end to um, potentially ban more books in school libraries. Yeah, and the House bill that says it kind of has to meet community standards, 
Uh, that it was voted on by both Republicans and Democrats. I almost wonder if that's the bill that's going to give cover to some Republicans to say, see, we voted to have appropriate books in the library. Um, but it kind of puts it back on the district. And by community standards, I guess it would allow parents to speak up at school board meetings at the local level if there are things that they didn't like, which was something that Senator Pugh said he wanted to see more of. He's like, I don't want us to be in the habit at the legislature of saying what a school district can and can't have on its bookshelves. Uh, parents, if they have a problem, should go to school boards. Um, so I wonder if that House bill is going to be the one that actually gets passed and it's going to be the one that kind of gives uh, Republicans kind of cover to go back to their districts to say, hey, I took a vote in favor of making sure that we had appropriate books uh, in our school libraries. Yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah. You mentioned uh, some of the vaccine mandate bills that went through. What did what did we see make it through? Oh, man. Um, oh, you're testing my knowledge here yeah. after a long week. Um, if I remember correctly, there was a bill from Senator David Bullard that passed that basically says that um, uh, it, it provides employees some protections that if they don't want to disclose their vaccination status, they don't have to and their employer can't compel them to do so. I can't remember specifically if that bill like required or, or banned vaccine mandates at all, but I, it was definitely more like, you know, you can't force your employee to tell us if they're vaccinated. Yeah, and that's going to be an interesting topic to continue to watch because it's something that the business community um, has, you know, has kind of been against, you know, the legislature telling businesses that they can or can't do mandates. Yeah, and it, you've seen this issue really divide the Republicans here at the legislature because you have the, you know, traditionally pro-business Republicans, and then you have these more like, I don't know how I would describe them, sort of like John Bennett type grassroots focused yeah. Republicans that are more... Um, I, I don't know, they say they're more driven to, I, I guess, focus on what the grassroots want and the grassroots, um, namely this one group, you know, Oklahomans for Health and Parental Rights, really wants to undo um, a lot of these vaccine mandates at businesses. Yeah, kind of a divide between what does the chamber want and what does social media want? It's <laughs> kind of the way that I look at it at a lot there. Much then, better way of describing it. Yeah, and then finally, um, and I'm putting you on the spot and you're doing a great job. If we have a legislative trivia night sometime this this year, um, you're definitely going to be my partner. Um, the uh, uh, Senator Treat's grocery tax bill. So this is the one that would remove the state grocery tax. Um, that's not a surprise. It got bipartisan support out of the gate. Uh, it was something that the governor pitched in his own uh, state of the state speech, and it looks like that one's going to continue to move along. Correct. Yes. But the interesting thing now is um, Speaker McCall on Thursday, he um, he basically pitched a, a new slate of tax reform ideas and included in that. And he says there's like four or five bills. I think five bills. One is four from McCall and one is from Representative Jeff Boatman. Um, and McCall says, you know, there's certainly not enough money to do all of them, but two of them pertain to the grocery sales tax. Um, one would be to basically suspend the state's grocery sales tax for two years. And then the other would be to increase the grocery sales tax credit, um, which I may not describe very well, but is basically a tax credit for low-income Oklahomans that they can claim for buying groceries. Yeah. And there are some, especially progressives, who said that's the better way to go, that you are giving relief to those who need it, but you're not depleting the state of funds, many of which are actually helping those low-income Oklahomans who need that support. Um, so it'll be interesting to see you know, that debate as that continues to go along. Did we see, I know you're writing about McCall's uh, tax uh, reform measures, uh, did we see a bill to, to continue to reduce the corporate income tax? 
Yes. So the bill from Representative Jeff Boatman that McCall um, and McCall pitched all of these basically saying, you know, I want to put them out there as discussion topics. Um, But the bill from Representative Boatman would phase out the corporate income tax over eight years. So it's currently at 4% and then phase it out over eight years. There's also McCall has proposed another cut to the personal income tax rates. So um, last session, and it took effect January 1, last session, they cut all the income tax rates by 0.25%. And then this year, McCall proposes doing the same thing, another 0.25%. So to uh, take our highest income tax rate, which most people pay from 4.75% down to 4.5%. Um, And then there was another bill to just like basically, you know, acknowledge, hey, inflation sucks right now. We know you're paying more at the gas pump, at the grocery store, everywhere in between. Here's a check um, for a certain amount of money, uh, $125 if you're a single tax filer and $250 if you're a household tax filer. So, yeah, we've talked before about bargaining chips um, and it'll be interesting to see if, if, you know, McCall's tax cuts make it over to the Senate and if treats uh, school voucher bill makes it over to the house. Uh, be interesting to see which what the leaders do with each other's, you know, kind of pet projects. Uh, you know, especially on the voucher one, knowing that McCullough said he's not for it. You know, will treat say, hey, I'm, you know, give me something on that if you want me to give you something um, on, on these tax cuts, or you know, does, is the caucus just universally uh, approve of tax cuts and it, it doesn't matter? I don't know. It'll be interesting to, to watch as we continue to move along. Um, well, let's shift gears here a little bit. It is an election year. We've talked about, obviously, that is impacting a lot of what we see out of the Capitol. The big election news in Oklahoma is that Senator Jim Inhofe is going to step down at the end of this year. It's going to uh, force a special election. So both Oklahoma Senate seats will be on the ballot this year. But what makes this what makes the announcement big, besides the fact that you have such a, a giant of Oklahoma politics retiring, um, it kind of re- reminded me several years ago when Senator Coburn stepped down, it just creates this domino effect. So you have people who are going to run for Inhofe seat uh, that hold maybe statewide office or hold legislative office, and that creates an opening there. Or we see some members of uh, the House, the U.S. House that say they're going to run for Inhofe seat. It's just it's kind of creating this big shakeup. What have we seen so far? Yeah, it's. I mean, if you think about it, this is almost like a, a once in a lifetime chance. If you think about how long Inhofe was in office and um, you know, I always hear that U S senators have it much nicer than congressmen um, being one of a hundreds, a lot easier than being one of several hundred. Yeah. Um, so what we've seen so far, I mean, representative uh, Mark Wayne Mullen uh, who represents CD two has announced that he's going to run for Inhofe seat which of course means he can't run for seating two again. Um, so that opens his seat. So, you know, we see a flurry, well, not a flurry yet. We've seen one person announce, but other people considering running for congressional district two. Um, but behind the scenes, I mean, there's just like talk of all these people that have been prominent in Oklahoma politics in the past, I don't know, decade, two decades that all say they're thinking about running for in-house seat. Um, how many of those folks will actually jump in? Hard to say. And then, you know, Inhofe himself has endorsed his former chief of staff, Luke Holland, who's um, 35 and um, worked for the senator for, I think it was like 10 years or something like that, but is not, I would say, not a well known name in Oklahoma politics. And I don't think that he has 
um, per se, the money that it would take to to win in this sort of special election. I will be endorsing Luke Holland to replace me. He's the one who's qualified to do it. He's one that I have no doubt in my mind can win. Yeah, so interesting that Inhofe would endorse him. I mean, not I mean, not surprised because it's a staff member, but like you say, it, it's not like he's got an easy road to winning the nomination. Right. But maybe it will be easier if, say, Inhofe lends him his Rolodex, his campaign lists, his fundraising lists, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. So a lot of attention turned to Governor Stitt. There's all these. And it's, these are normal rumors for probably any governor, um, especially a, a first time politician. I mean, remember that Governor Stitt has not held political office before this. So he is at the very beginning of his political career and maybe after four or eight years as governor, it'll be the end. Maybe it'll just be a, a you know, one office politician. Um, but usually they they like to look at other office. And when you're governor, there's really no way to get bigger in a state. You got to look towards D.C. Um, you know, a house seat for a governor, uh, that's probably not that exciting. So it's really the Senate. So really, if, if Stitt is looking for higher office, um, other than the White House, and we could talk about that, I guess. But um, the Senate is the seat, right? Yeah, absolutely. But um, Governor Stitt says he's not running. And I'm glad you asked me about this because I was I was reading earlier today about, you know, my former I lived in Arizona for a while. And there's been speculation about the governor there, Governor Doug Ducey, that he might run for the U.S. Senate against uh, current uh, senator and, you know, former astronaut Mark Kelly. Um, and. Doug Ducey put out a letter to all of his donors officially saying, I guess yesterday or the day before, officially saying, I'm not running for the U.S. Senate. And in there, he had a really good quote that came from a former U.S. senator from Arizona. And it basically said, all right, Governor Ducey, are you are you an executive or are you, you know, a rank and file type? And it really made me think of Governor Stitt because. I think we've all figured out over the past three years that Governor Stitt is not a rank and file. He's not one to be one of 100 or one of 500 something. He is an executive. It's that CEO mentality. That's how he's run his uh, gubernatorial office, his administration. And so, you know, I think there will still be rumors, even though Governor Stitt said he's not running for Senate. Um, and has no plans to, I think there will still be rumors. Oh, is he, is he saying that? Or is he really going to run? But I mean, I think, I don't know that he would enjoy it. I don't think he would be well suited for it. That's a great point. I want, yeah, that's a great point. I don't, I don't know that he has, I don't mean the attention span because that sounds like I'm criticized. I don't know if he has the attention span for the Senate, the right to be one of those members. I mean, he's a big fish in a small pond versus going to be, you know, a, a, small fish in a big pond, I guess. I mean, that's, you know, I, I, in a lot of ways, you can make a case that it's better to be governor of a state than one of the senators. Yeah. But then, you know, then again, you got to make the argument that if you don't want to be in Congress and you don't want to be in the U.S. Senate, you don't have a lot of stepping stone options unless you either want to be on a presidential ticket or you want to get appointed by a president to something. And that takes a lot more work and a lot more chance. 
there's been rumors about him maybe eyeing a run for president. I don't think it's any it's based on any substantial information. Um, it wouldn't surprise me just because you see so many people run for president these days. I mean, so who's to say that if we saw 30 Republicans run, the, you know, the next time that he wouldn't want, you know, why wouldn't he maybe consider it? So we're really theorizing here. And I know we're not basing this on any information, but is it better for him to make a run for president as a U.S. senator or as a governor? I would say as a governor. Yeah, I, I mean, the senator gives you more name recognition because now you're a little bit in the national spotlight, although the senator from Oklahoma is not going to be as well known as maybe from Texas or California. But I still think a governor maybe gives you a better chance. Yeah, and I would agree based solely on the fact that, you know, it's a Republican led state. So Stitt has more opportunity to stay here for four or however many more years um, and try to implement the reforms he wants to see and then try to launch a presidential campaign and say, look at all these things I did to improve the state of Oklahoma. Look at all these things I was able to do. Whereas in the Senate, you know, you may try to do some things. You may try to pass some bills, but who knows if any of them are going to get through or if any of them are going to be remarkable enough to get national attention. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great point. What about in the legislature? Have we seen any of this shakeup follow the legislature yet? Any, you know, state house or Senate members you think that are eyeing a run for something? I did get to ask Speaker McCall today if he plans to run for higher office. And he says, no, he's, he's pretty, he's, He's pretty happy running for speaker at the moment, um, but uh, State Senator Marty Quinn has announced that he's going to run for the for Mullen's seat, which is Congressional District Two. And there are rumors that other uh, state lawmakers, Republican state lawmakers, are going to run. Um, it's funny. I was sitting in a committee hearing the other day, and uh, Representative Crosswhite Hater. Um, was joking with Representative Emily Virgin saying, oh, you know, I hear that if, if you're announcing things, this week is the week to do it because everybody's announcing things. And uh, Emily Virgin basically brushed that off and was like, oh, I'm, I'm not running for anything. I'm running to get out of this building. So. <laughs> yeah, well, that brings a good point. I mean, the, it's not like Enhoff's news impacts Democrats because they could always run. But are we we're not seeing big names of Democrats running for U.S. Senate or Congress right now? Not yet. I mean, there's there's the rumors that Kinder Horn might run for in-off seat, but, and you know as well as I do, I mean, it's going to be a hard seat for any Democrat to win. And I think that's why most of our conversation here has focused on what Republicans might run or which Republicans are definitely going to run. Yeah. I mean, that just the Democratic bench right now is just not not very deep. And I don't know, you know, I'm not a, a, that's not my word. I don't work in political strategy. So I don't know how you you build up that bench. And to talk about Kendra Horn, I mean, really, that's just based on, uh, well, I guess there's been a few statements that came out that said she's thinking about it. She initially kind of tweeted what the raised eyes about Inhofe's announcement that kind of, you know, pointed that maybe she is looking at that race. And if you are a Democrat, the chances aren't great, but the chances are probably a little better when you don't have to run against an incumbent, right? Right. Absolutely. Open season both sides of the party. But then again, both Senate seats are on the ballot for a Democrat to win. You know, it's probably going to take voters that are voting for Lankford, you know, a Republican on one and then running, voting for a Democrat on the other. And voters just aren't very good at splitting their ballot. Yeah. You would need a really moderate Dem Democrat to run to get that sort of split ticket. I mean, that's not to say that I think a Democrat could win that seat. And, and just look at the, um, you know, Senator James Langford running for reelection. And we haven't seen a Democrat 
have we seen a Democrat announced there? I don't think we have. Have we? I don't, I don't think so. Um, no, not a prominent Democrat, though. Yeah. So. We've seen um, Abby Broyles, who ran for Senate against Inhofe two years ago. She's running or has been running for uh, CD5 against Stephanie Bice. Um, people will probably know about some of some recent events of hers in the news. So I don't know, maybe she doesn't run for that seat again. I think what was interesting, I'm bringing this up because what was interesting is I think our colleague Chris Castile wrote a story about uh, Abby Broyles and her, everyone's going to know what we're talking about, but her night at, I don't know how to how to sum it up, her night at a, at a sleepover, a teen sleepover, <laughs> sounds weird, but just and, a, and appeared to be intoxicated, but he asked uh, the chair of the state Democratic Party, and she kind of came across like, like whether or not they were going to continue to support her. And she's like, well, we're not going to get in our way. And we just don't have a great answer right now about putting candidates up for these seats. Yeah, I wonder how much of that is like the fact that what you just mentioned, that they don't really have a deep bench, that like, isn't it better to have a candidate, any candidate than no candidate at all? Yeah. Well, but you have to, this cycle is a good reminder that, you know, if the Democrats are going to win statewide races, they're going to have to have people who can win these state house and Senate races and, and kind of work their way up because that's what we're seeing right now is we're seeing um, we'll take Langford for an example. I mean, he was a member of the legislature before uh, he ran for House and then Senate. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, members of the legislature now eyeing House seats and those House members eyeing Senate seats. And so not always. I mean, as we've seen with the governor, you can sometimes just come in out of nowhere and win a statewide race. But a lot of times you have to kind of build up from it. Uh, And that's why it's important for Democrats to win some of these state legislative races. But they're increasingly not that competitive. Right. And I mean, turnout is you need turnout at the top of the ticket to get turn out lower on the ticket, right? Like if you're really motivated as a Democrat, if you're really, really motivated to vote in the governor's race, let's say you just love Joy Hoffmeister and that's going to get you out. You may have no idea who's running in your legislative district, right? You may not care about what happens at the state house or pay close attention to what your your lawmaker does. But let's say you want to get out, you vote for Joy Hoffmeister. And then as you're going down the ballot, you're filling things out. You see, oh, hey, there's a Dem running against um, the lawmaker in my district. Okay, I guess I'll vote for them too. So, I mean, and then you just need it both ends of the ticket to improve your chances. Yeah, well, I, I mean, assuming Hoffmeister wins the Democratic nomination for governor, she becomes kind of the the unofficial leader of the party. I mean, usually you're, you know, in the same way a president candidate is, I mean, the your nominee for governor is kind of the, you know, your top, you know, official, not that she's like controls the, the state party, uh, but she wasn't a Democrat a year ago. Um, and what's interesting to me is you could have a Hoffmeister versus Stitt race where uh, one wasn't a member of her party a year ago, and one was unknown to anyone in politics four years ago or five years ago. That is pretty funny. So we talk about the stepping stone, but obviously you can come out of nowhere or make big changes and, you know, and, and still appear on some ballots. So it, it'll be interesting to watch. And I obviously we're going to see more of these announcements. Um, so far, we've only talked about men that are running for these seats. It'll be interesting to see if we see any um, female candidates. And I say that because traditionally, at least based on studies, um, 
uh, men are sometimes quicker to throw their hat in the ring than women. Um, that's not better. Sometimes men are like, hey, I can run and I can win this seat. Well, women may be a little more deliberate. Hey, let's pause here. Do I have the funding? Do I have the support? Okay, I do. I'll run. So uh, I think it'll be interesting to see in the coming weeks if we see maybe some female candidates run for some of these offices seats. Yeah. Well, not to be too flippant, but I find that men men think they can run for just about anything. And, and women just need more encouragement which it shouldn't be that way, but that's the way it is. That's true. And I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily better for men to, <laughs> you know, to just think that they can just do it. Yeah. Um, well, Hey, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Um, a, a busy week at the, at the Capitol, um, you know, not the next week won't be busy, but then in a couple of weeks we have spring break. So maybe things die down a little bit. Um, we get a little bit of a relief. Uh, it's kind of like we're at the end of the first quarter in a football game here at the legislature. Um, and, and definitely uh, a lot to keep an eye on that you've been writing about and we'll continue to write about. So continue to follow our coverage in the Oklahoma. And so, Hey, Carmen, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the Political State Podcast. You can find this and every episode in your favorite podcast player. Also find us uh, on video format on the Oklahoman's YouTube page. Uh, for the Oklahoman, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening and watching. We'll see you again next week. Thank you.